0: Welcome, everybody, to Campus Preacher Live on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Uh, today we're going to be discussing Christianity and white supremacy, or Christi- or <laughs> white supremacy in creationism. Uh, last week I came across an article on the Scientific American discussing how uh, an anti-evolutionary bend is actually white supremacy. So we're going to be discussing that, but before we get into that, uh, I do want to plug the Fight, Laugh, Feast Conference in Nashville, Tennessee I guess it's a suburb of Nashville, Tennessee. I don't remember the name of the town, but basically Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, September 9th through the 11th on the politics of sex. And if you see an advertisement, it will say censored. So we'll be discussing male, female, and all things sexuality. And if you get a chance before the conference, hunt down, um, R.J. Rush The Politics of Pornography, probably help prep you uh, for that. So we're going to be discussing uh, basically white supremacy and creationism. Uh, but before I get into that as well, I want to discuss. Uh, so two weeks ago, we did not do a live show last week, but two weeks ago, uh, I probably should have rewatched the show. But I, apparently I made a comment about John 8 and Jesus administering grace uh, to women. So I got a, an email uh, regarding that. And there's a guy named Dr. Let me get this name right. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. Fruchtenbaum. Hopefully I'm uh, pronouncing that right. And uh, so uh, I got an email asking about this man's take on it. And it was a kind email. I'm I'm not like, it's not like it was a bad email. It was just like, hey, what's your take on this guy's uh, angle on what's happening in John chapter 8? And the short answer for what this guy's take on John chapter 8 is, is that the issue going on in John chapter 8 isn't so much that Jesus is being gracious per se, and I would never say he's setting aside the law per se, but that what's really going on here is, so the Pharisees catch a woman in adultery, so they catch her in the act. So according to the law of Moses, what they're supposed to do is bring her and the man who is caught in the act to the judge, and then from there the stoning is to happen. And what he wants is that when Jesus writes in the dirt, basically it deals with the Ten Commandments, that what he's writing, if you recall in the Old Testament, the two times we see God's hand is in the Ten Commandments, writing that, then also... Um, when it's Belteshazzar in, um, I think it's Daniel nine, maybe. Um, but basically the handwriting on the wall. Once, um, and so the idea being is that when Jesus writes on dirt, he's writing the commandments, and in writing the commandments, what he's demonstrating to the Pharisees is not so much that they are upholding. The law of Moses, but rather they're violating the law of Moses because, according to the law of Moses, I believe it's Deuteronomy 13 that the man points to. It might be 18, uh, Deuteronomy 13, that uh, it, that if you are guilty of that crime, you cannot bear witness against somebody. So, in theory, basically, that these Pharisees they were adulterers, and so they, so he who is without the same sin cast the first stone. And so, the reality of it is, these men would not be. Uh, without the same sin, therefore they cannot cast the first stone in this judgment. Then all men go away and Jesus stands there and says, who's here to condemn you? Neither am I, therefore go and sin no more. Now, in many ways, I, I basically would sign off on this basic interpretation. I don't believe the Pharisees are taking the law of Moses seriously and they are setting it aside and bringing her to Jesus. But I also want to say that there is more going on. So, th- this isn't a one-to-one analogy, but a few weeks ago um, Bill Cosby was let go because he made a um, he made a uh, previous... I, I think it was a DA. Basically, they would not charge him with those things. So when he went to trial, then he was able to basically be set free from jail because of a previous agreement that they had and that the, the whole trial should not have gone through. And therefore, he's able to get free. And so the question is, for this woman who is caught in the act, we'll assume she's caught in the act of adultery, like real adultery, is at the end, the announcement to her is, hey, you're off on a technicality. So even though, yes, you are an adulterous woman, you're off on a technicality So go and sin no more, and this charge won't be brought against you. But I still think there's an element of what's going on between her and God. What, what's her place before the law? And part of the reason, or part of the thing I want to argue is putting John chapter 8 in a broader context. So in John chapter 8, you have the woman caught in adultery. In John chapter 5, you had the Samaritan woman at the well who has had many husbands. And then going back to I believe it's John chapter 1, when John the Baptist comes, he refers or it's John chapter 3 refers to Jesus as the bridegroom. Um And so what we have, what I want to argue, what we have going on in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the new Adam, and he's taking a new bride to himself, and the bride that he's taking is not Israel, who would have been God's bride in the Old Testament, but they are the adulterous people. And just as in John chapter 8, they want to stone the adulterous woman, I believe it's Revelation chapter 17... Israel, the the whore of Babylon, uh, she gets stoned with hail. So she gets hailstones upon her. So that, that generation of Jews is the adulterous generation. And so what I do think is happening is that grace is being administered to sinners, be it the Samaritan woman, be it the woman caught in adultery, um, and various sinners all over the place throughout the Gospel of John, and he's taking people to himself. And I think even one of the key elements uh, that Dr. Fuchtenbaum does not consider is that This is taking place in the temple. And I, and I think what's vital here is even though I I would, I'm kind of conjecturing here, but the idea that what the stones that they're taking here in the temple are actually part of the temple stones. The temple is still being rebuilt and it's these stones that's actually are going to crumble themselves. So just as they want to take the stones from the temple to stone the adulterous woman, at the end of John chapter eight, they also want to stone Jesus. It's actually the temple that's going to come down in stones. So they're the adulterous. So while I, I would fully affirm you know, basically everything that Dr. Fruchtenbaum is saying, because I do think the Jews are not taking the law of Moses seriously, and Jesus is taking the law of Moses seriously. I think there's also more going on. So it's not in of itself that I disagree. I just think more is going on, including real grace being administered to an adulterous woman who's now justified free. And is, in a sense, now wedded to Christ. She becomes the bride of Christ, um, in her conversion. I'm assuming she was converted, uh, just as the woman at the well, uh, go get your husband. Oh, that's right. The man you've had five, the man you're not with, currently with is not your husband. Jesus is the seventh man. He's the perfect husband. So I think that's what's more what's going on is this arc in the, in the Gospel of John, in the book of Revelation, that Christ has taken a new bride to himself. And what he's actually taking to himself is sinners. And Dr. Fruchtenbaum ends that article. Um, with the substitutionary nature of Christ's atonement, which we would fully affirm that Jesus died for the law. But one of the things that's also interesting in that email, I was also asked um, regarding the homosexual issue, preaching the gospel to homosexuals, um, should we just kind of take a Ray Comfort approach? So apparently, I've not heard Ray discuss this. I'm just going off of the email, is that what Ray says is that we should kind of set aside their perversion, per se, and just take them through the law. And so if you've ever heard Ray Comfort, have you ever told a lie? That uh, might be the worst uh, New Zealand accent, but have you ever told a lie? Oh, so you're a liar. Have you ever uh, lusted after a woman? You're an adulterer. Have you ever uh, stolen something? So you're a lying, thieving, adulterer. So you're a self-admitted, lying, thieving, adulterer. So I think that's pretty good. I don't think it's a, a horrible thing to have in your toolbox. Um, but the question is, so what Ray, or what Ray wants to do is kind of set aside the homosexual issue and just take people through the law, such as, lying, thieving, adultery, and stuff like that, just as you would any other sinner, and apply that. Now, I think there's wisdom to that. Um, I I have not thought through that issue sufficiently, but I think there's wisdom in willing to set aside, to an extent, the homosexual issue, just, like, not set it aside, it's not the right thing, Um, but in a sense, setting aside temporarily to deal with a bunch of other issues. When you have such an emotional hot-button issue like that, I think there can be wisdom To set it aside and push forward into other things, such as their lying, such as their uh, anger, their bitterness, their resentment, whatever the other issue is, then deal with these things downstream. Because one of the things you begin to realize as you start to do more and more ministry, or, you know, after 20 years of kind of doing ministry, um, there's so much intertwine in people and there's so much baggage that's driving so much what's going on. There's a lot of there's a lot of avenues that you can end up reaching people. And oftentimes you don't have to go after the most immediate blunt sort of thing, which is like in our culture it's going to be the homosexual issue which in turn is so wrapped up in a bunch of other things, including what we're going to discuss today, white supremacy, because uh, even even that wants to be a white normativity sort of thing. So even opposition to homosexuality can be a white supremacy thing. So when it comes to Ray Comfort's approach, I think, uh, again, I, I, aside from an email, I can't speak too intelligently to Ray's approach. I list the Hell's Best Cup secret, just one of the tapes, maybe like 20 years ago. I think there was a series of tapes. I was traveling with a guy and he played one, and I didn't really disagree the you know, basic backdrop of, a lot of Reformed thinking is there's three uses of the law, and one of the uses of the law is, uh, is conviction of sin and sinners and call them to repentance and faith. And so um, I think it's fine to set aside some of their perversions initially to address other things, such as their lying, their thieving, their adultery, dishonoring their father and their mother, probably prevalent, as well as just not worshiping God. Oftentimes when I'm interacting with homosexuals on, ish, on campus, I'll, I'll often just say something to the effect, well, no wonder you're confused. You're not even worshiping God. When you're not worshiping God, you don't know where your body goes. You don't know how... But once you begin to worship God, you'll realize that the male-female body just fits. They go together. Like a key and a lock, they just fit. You don't take two keys. You don't take two, two locks. Um, but a key and a lock go together. So I think there's a myriad of ways to address the homosexual issue. Um, and sometimes I think the wisest thing is to actually... Kind of set it aside, put it on the back burner, uh, which I don't always get to do on campus because it's always some frat boy yelling out, What about the gays? is what they, What about the gays? they always yell out. And it's never, it's, or very rarely the homosexuals that want to discuss it. It's some uh, frat boy that wants to discuss it. Um, But what I want to mainly talk about, let me get the, let me get our YouTube up here. Maybe. Um the uh so last week I came across an article that I just thought was patently absurd. And it's by and it, and the thing where it makes it more absurd, it's one thing like if you just see someone writing a blog or a tweet or something like that, but in theory, there are still mainstream magazines, there's still mainstream media, and I would say something like Scientific American is a fairly mainstream sort of media, uh still a mainstream magazine that I knew about when I was little. I've heard about for a long time. It's not like I've ever really spent time reading The Scientific American. Um, But they, like just about everybody else, is becoming uh, kind of a caricature of themselves. They're not really being scientific. They're more being governed by sociological experiments, such as egalitarianism, uh, anti-racism, and these sorts of things. So anyway, uh, there was a woman there on July 5th, wrote an article, a woman by the name of Allison Hopper. Alison Hopper, and she wrote an article called Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy. Denial of Evolution is a Form of White Supremacy. And uh, the the basic gist, I'm going to read a couple sections here that she wants to get at, is that she wants to look at an historical strand that basically there are people who have argued, and we need to agree, there are people who have argued this, is that people have argued that the Mark of Cain is much more of a racial identity, that black people came about because of a mark on Cain. He kills Abel, gets a mark on Cain. Therefore, uh, black people are cursed. They're under the authority of white people. And what she wants to argue, though, is that there is a direct lineage, and, and her language is so convoluted, in white evangelical creationists. There's a direct line going right back to Adam uh, for white people, going all the way back to Adam. Uh, whereas... I, I, and she even brings the KKK. She enlisted their help. And if you think about the KKK, they're not usually pro-Jew. And if you think about uh, the average Bible reading, there's a lot of Jews, including, say, John 4, when Jesus says salvation comes from the Jews. Um, so your average white supremacist is not usually pro-Jew, and yet if you read the Bible, the Bible's a pretty Jewish book. And I think every book written in the Bible, aside from Luke and Acts, uh, is written by a Jew. So so this idea that it's a white supremacist document, and th- this even ties in, two years ago, I'm preaching on a campus up in New England, and there was a uh, young woman there, a black girl, and I, I may have mentioned this, I was telling somebody recently, but she uh, begins to take issue with me. She tells me that she used to be a Christian, and then she gets to college, she takes a critical theory class, and she realizes that the Bible's been colonized by the white man. And so so I'm the white man. I've colonized the Bible, and I use the Bible now to oppress her rather than to liberate her. And so uh, critical theory is an emancipation project, and she's throwing off the constraints that me as a white male have placed upon her. She's throwing those things off, and she's returning to her African roots, and she's returning to her African spirituality, and it's actually a place of liberation rather than a place of slavery. But when I asked her, um, well, where particularly and what particularly have we colonized, she couldn't give me the one thing that was that. And so what we need to do, I think, in part, is we need to acknowledge, yeah, there have been people like the KKK who try to enlist the Bible for their very blatant racism. I think we need to acknowledge that. But on the flip side, then we need to ask the question, what does the Bible teach, and can we know what it teaches? And so in this discussion, when it comes to evolution and Christianity— uh, rather than just debating historical contingencies and, and a contingent event is like i last week i didn't do a show this week i'm doing a show there's no necessity to me doing this live show that's a contingent event and so a contingent event is how so when it comes to like bi- history most events in history are going to you can consider them contingent so there is no necessity that 19th century americans um Uh, when they're defending slavery, need to turn to Cain and Abel, that story, and say, here's the justification for our racism. Here's the justification for our slavery because of these. Now, if you're talking to a hardcore leftist, they may say there's necessity due to environmental and economic circumstances that are dictating their uh, interpretation, but the problem with that becomes, why is their economic and social conditions not now interpreting their understanding or or, uh, driving their interpretation so the minute someone wants to give a lot of necessity to an historical what we'd identify as a contingent event and define that as the broader cultural they're people of their times well why aren't you just the person of your time what sets you free from your context is a place that we want to push back Um, but where we need to go in this discussion is the broader overarching what does darwinism say about the nature of reality what does Christianity say about the nature of reality? Now, it's possible, like if you take like uh, the Nation of Islam, it's possible that you have something like the Nation of Islam that teaches that I was made by a mad scientist on a UFO and has placed a white man on Earth. That's, that's a possibility. Like, you might think it's absurd and all that sort of stuff, but that doesn't mean that it's false. So I'm open to the idea, theoretically, that it's possible that there is a creator God who put white people or black people, if you're ever preaching in cities, you'll come across the black Israelites uh, or the Hebrew Israelites, and they are basically the black version of the KKK. They, they have the reasons of why the white man's a devil and why the black man's a chosen people of God. So you have that kind of going back and forth. So I would just say this, where do we need to take the debate? I would say the Christian needs to take the debate here. First and foremost, um, then we'd have, you know, uh, we, I would just say we begin with creation. And Paul in Acts chapter 17 says, from one blood or from one man come all nations. So the Christian acknowledges from the word go, going all the way back to Genesis uh, chapter one and two, to Acts chapter 17, and then one of the key things that's going to come to play as well is Genesis 12 and Genesis 14 and 15, or Genesis 12, 15, 17, where the promises to Abraham. So the Christian position is this. God made the heavens and the earth. From one man, Adam and Eve, uh, from one man, Adam, come all nations. And those nations came about in not with Cain and Abel, because we still have to deal with the flood after Cain and Abel, but through the sons of Noah. So even from a Christian standpoint, taking just broad orthodoxy into play is what you have going on in Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 11 is you have the flood coming out of the flood. You have Shem, Ham, Japheth, the children of uh, Noah, and they begin to spread out. And then what you have, them creating the Tower of Babel, and then you have the division of nations, and you have 70 nations going on there. So any racial component going on, you'd, you'd have to posit some concept of a polygenesis um, if you really want like a full tilt racism going on. But otherwise, what you have is from one blood, Adam and Eve going down to Noah and then Noah and his children, all the nations coming from them. And I don't think there's a place for racism, per se, from Genesis chapter 11, because what ends up happening in Genesis chapter 11, right after that, is Genesis chapter 12 and the call of Abraham. And the response to the call of Abraham is he does take one man, and from you is going to become a blessing to every nation or all the nations. What nations are those? Those are the 70 nations found in Genesis chapter 11, which would include Egypt and every direction that you want to go uh, with man. So the reality of it is, I don't think there's a biblical case to be made for, quote-unquote, white supremacy or black supremacy or Asian supremacy or Jewish supremacy, um, for some sort of supremacy in man or even male-female, although in the male-female thing we'd still argue for a, a, a hierarchy and a distinction. What we have is... I don't know if democracy is the right word because it conjures up too much, but there, you do have a democratic element when it's not just a king, it's not just white people, it's not just black people, uh, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are image bearers of God. If you remember a few weeks ago, the Imago Dei. So realize this, the, the left, they kind of do that. They, in one breath, the progs are going to take the Imago Dei and push every issue they want through the Imago Dei. But when it's no longer convenient, they're going to say, oh yeah, and by the way, the history of Christianity is racist. And so so you, if you, you have that, that meme with the two buttons. Which way do you want to go? Do you want to go Christianity teaches the image of God? Therefore, we need universal health care. We need egalitarianism and we need trans rights and all this stuff because we need to show dignity and respect to the image of God. Or do you want to go the route of Christianity is really a white supremacist document? And um, But on the flip side, what you want to discuss then is the reality of... <laughs> Uh, some people do have too much time to write about this idiocy. Is- they do, but it's also the world that we're in. That's why I'm addressing it, because I, I do think the white supremacy and the whiteness, that angle is just going to be more and more prevalent as kind of like the BLM angle gains momentum. That's the main reason I'm addressing it. But but then more broadly, you have this. And um, uh, uh, Richard Dawkins, in his book, River Out of Eden, says this. And so so my point... Beginning point, Christianity has a meaningful universe. It begins with a personal being creating the cosmos from one man come all nations, whites, blacks, males, females, rich, poor. Everybody is derived from Adam and Eve. They're image bearers of God. And that's also why we'd want to maintain there's a judgment uh, because they're not just mere animals, but rather they're image bearers of God and they're responsible for their uh, actions. But Richard Dawkins says this, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. That's kind of a a loaded sentence, especially when you consider what he says at the end. He says, during the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. If there ever is a time of plenty— this very fact will automatically lead to an increase in the population until the natural state of starvation and misery is restored. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but bl- but pitiless. I, I think in another, I, I think it says blind, but blind, pitiless indifference. So think about Richard Dawkins, who's one of the leading, basically proponents of evolution over the last 50, 60 years. Um, he's saying at bottom, the universe there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, just blind, pitiless indifference. So that would include any aspect of what white people have been doing to black people. So we're just going to grant racism that you know all of white western white history pure unadulterated racism i'm just going to say if evolution's true they're not doing anything wrong plain and simple any suffering that they're causing to uh, anybody of either their own race or another race given evolution it's not wrong and given evolution through war death and famine darwin says at the end of origin of species come higher forms of species so so if you're a darwinist you have to have some element of at least more advanced, higher. He uses higher forms. Um, but what you end up realizing when you begin to push this language is what you realize that the the Darwinists today they, they want to begin to back off a purebred Darwinism, and they become more sociological, and they want there to be some element of egalitarianism. But if you just take um, Richard Dawkins' statement, the last sentence here uh, seriously, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect it if, at bottom, no design, no purpose no evil, no good, nothing but but blind pitiless indifference. That has to apply to racism. So when they want to say Christianity has caused racism, uh, we, we can we could agree that Christians have been racist or professing Christians have been racist. And we, we don't need to defend that point. But what we need to lean in on is given evolution, given creation, which one can say racism's actually wrong? Darwinism cannot give you an ought. As Dawkins says here, there is no good, there is no evil. There are no Ought that you ought not to be racist you can observe to events a white man striking a black man and you can say you don't like that but there's nothing in the universe that says he ought not to do that and even one of the places where this kind of plays through is um i was reading an article by a guy named it's called darwin race and gender by Stephen rose and this is from embo reports which is basically like a um i can't remember how they describe it basically like a microbiology peer-reviewed journal so it's not just some you know again it's not a blog it's a peer reviewed journal and um some of the things that he emphasizes here I think are important in our discussion because oftentimes people want to yeah some Christians want to just flat out say Darwin was a racist, others say he's not and uh, to an extent uh, you know even if Darwin was a full tilt racist doesn't mean Darwinism's wrong <laughs> like that that should be obvious uh even if you know, some Southern Presbyterian was a full tilt racist. Doesn't mean Presbyterianism is wrong. Doesn't mean Southern Presbyterian is wrong. Just means that guy was a racist. So, so this idea sometimes that we want to like, oh, Darwin was a racist, therefore someone should reject Darwinism, That just doesn't simply doesn't follow. But what uh, this guy wants to argue is that Darwin was a man of his times. He says, true, he was committed to a monogenetic. So basically, some element of. Uh, all people being derived from the same gene pool rather than a multiple gene pool it says rather than prevailing polygenic view of human origins but he still divided humanity into distinct races according to differences in skin eye or hair color he was also convinced that evolution was progressive and that the white race especially the europeans were evolutionarily more advanced than their black than the black races thus establishing race differences and racial hierarchies darwin's views on gender too were early conventional conventional he stated that the result of sexual selection is for men to be more courageous pugnacious and energetic than women with a more inventive genius His brain is absolutely larger. The formation of her skull is said to be intermediate between the child and the man. Um, And so anyway, he goes on to say, any attempt to separate a good Darwin from a bad Darwin, from a a good Darwin from a bad social Darwinist. That's one of the things, oftentimes if you're discussing Darwinism, they'll be say, ah, it's social Darwinism. And a book worth reading is, uh, I think it's Richard Hofstetter, Social Darwinism, American Thought. Uh, It's been a while since I read the book, but it was a good book kind of laying out strands of social Darwinism, and it's actually Herbert Spencer that came up with the idea of survival of the fittest. It's not a Chuck Darwin uh, concept. That's Herb Herbert Spencer, Herb Spencer, Chuck Darwin, Herb Spencer. Uh, Any attempt to separate a good Darwin from a bad social Darwinist cannot be sustained against a careful reading of Darwin's own writings. He enthusiastically endorsed his cousin Francis Galton's view of hereditary genius transmitted down the male line and nodded cautiously towards eugenics. During the 150 years since Darwin wrote such views on race, gender, and eugenics, whilst sometimes subterranean, they have uh, never entirely vanished. A sorry history often told and so think about that for a second the the, the reality is darwin and his views of eugenics everything that they lay out here um on his views on race gender and eugenics and so historically speaking um people may have just been already racist then they can hitch their wagon to chuck darwin's views it's kind of like you know people are just kind of socialist communist and they hitch their views oh now we have science with the uh what you, vaccine so now we kind of have a place where we can kind of appeal that we need government control over all these things here's the place we can finally do it and so people may have just been racist at the time chuck darwin may have just been a man of his time and uh he latched his racist views and his sexist views onto his science um but again i think the point is is more basic than that science is, is nihilism at bottom it can be descriptive say what is A ball rolls down a hill at X miles an hour, uh, gravity, certain things like that. Uh, So science is a descriptive enterprise, not a prescriptive enterprise. So prescription deals with values and oughts. And you go back to David Hume and the empiricists and the rise of science. You listen to basic science people um, who understand the philosophy of science. They will acknowledge that they cannot account for good and evil. They're just it's just a descriptive enterprise. So going back to this woman's article that gets uh, pretty ridiculous. Let me find this thing. Um. yeah here we go um, so that what, what we end up having is we need to get her to play by her own rules and she obviously wants evolution to basically be a progressive egalitarian enterprise and if we really take evolution seriously what we'll do is realize that the that man came from black people and black people were the original uh, creators of culture and we need to respect those uh, dark skinned people um, but take even American context right now so if we have this Regress. So like right now we're kind of caught up in history. And for many people it was the 1619 project. For many people, history began almost like in 1619. So there was no history prior to that. And now whatever's going on today is because white people, you know, uh in 1619 So was that 400 years ago. So basically 400 years ago, the decisions that white people were making now we're living here. But what were the decisions being made 400 years prior to that? that made those people in 1619 make those decisions. And what happened 400 years prior to that? And what happened 400 years prior to that? So if you have this regress of these infinite things, or not, it's not infinite because time's finite, but if you have this historical regress, rather, going back, when do we start drawing the line of, oh, here's what, where it went wrong? Now for the Darwinists, they're going to have to say somehow Whitey did it. But if black people are the first people who are giving us culture and they're the first cultured beings that have given us a culture that ends up producing whatever oppression is, be it slavery, be it misogyny, whatever it is, when did that enter the frame and why? So for the Christian, these things enter the frame going back to creation everything was good adam and eve rebelled against god but this historical process that these people want to get that somehow now has created these systems of oppression when did they begin i don't think she can answer that honestly especially if she wants the first people and the first culture makers uh to be black uh suddenly you're gonna have to have that be the place where uh the, the problem arose in that culture in that context and which in, you know if adam and eve were black i'm I'm 100% fine with it. Like, it's not, it doesn't throw off my theology, doesn't throw off my thinking, uh, it's just the simple reality of they were the first human beings, they rebelled against God, and therefore uh, the earth's been corrupted, and, uh, or the whole world and all, every race has been corrupted. And I even went, end up going to Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, and I very rarely pay attention to Answers in Genesis. Um, I, I just don't like the way they read the Bible, to be honest, and so I don't trust them with science. So I'm afraid of reading one of their little scientific, um, arguments, repeating it. And people being like, that's not even right. Cause when people repeat their biblical arguments, I'm like, yeah, I don't think that's right. So I'm afraid of doing that with their, uh, with their science. Uh, so, but even if you go to their site, they're very plain that kind of like Brown was the original people. Um, so this idea from, uh, the scientific American that, uh, that, that white evangelicals is this racist thing, that the premier, and Ken Ham, and to my knowledge, everybody at Answers in Genesis that I've ever seen is a white person, kind of the premier white evangelical fundamentalist literal interpretation of the Bible people, Answers in Genesis, they're kind of like, ah, yeah, the original people were brown. And so so when when the the, the article's not even verified in any way from what the uh, woman is actually arguing, you just kind of realize the absurdity of all. And, like, I'm uh, I'm buried deep in documents. I'm just trying to find um, the one I want from her. Um, and, yeah, I'm not going to go through this whole thing. The, the the one, actually, place that I wanted to brush at is this. She says, uh, I want to unmask the lie that evolution denial is about religion and recognize that at its core is a form of white supremacy that perpetuates segregation and violence against black bodies. So and that so even one of the things that's really clever in this article, and she basically just talks out of both sides of her mouth, it's not about religion. It's about white supremacy. I want to prove that. But then, what is, what is her next thing she ends up saying? She says, at the heart of white evangelical creationism is the mythology of an unbroken white lineage that stretches back to a light-skinned Adam and Eve. Nowhere to be found, like I said, Ken Ham, those people, they're like, ah, brown people, not or light-skinned people. Um it goes on to say in literal interpretation of the Christian Bible, white skin was created in God's image. <laughs> I and just ask, what literal interpretation of the Bible? What verse says Adam and Eve were white skin? Uh yeah, in literal interpretations of the Christian Bible, white skin was created in God's image. What what literal interpretation is there any text that you can think of that says anything even close to that? The Christian answer is no, and you, know, you look at a Middle Easterner, they're not Europeans. And so everybody I know believes biblical history is the ancient Near Eastern history. There's no way you're getting a white person. She goes on to say this. Uh, uh, dark skin has a different, more problematic origin. As a biblical story goes, the curse, or mark of Cain for killing his brother, was a darkening of his descendant's skin. Historically, many congregations in the U.S. pointed to the story of Cain as evidence that black skin was created as a punishment. Now you see the huge leaps she makes there. So she starts off saying... Uh, this whole idea of evolution, uh, denial, is not about religion, it's about white supremacy. But then she wants to get into the text. So in one breath, she's, oh, it's not about religion, now I'm going to attack the Bible, because a liberal reading of the Bible says, Adam and Eve were like, white-skinned, which is nowhere to be found. But then she makes the leap to what people in America have done. And those are just a bunch of different – the idea that we can find some people in America that believe absurd things, be it the flat earth, uh, be it Adam and Eve are white, Adam and Eve are black, whatever whatever issue we want to justify, we can kind of go that route. But the question becomes, is that what the text is actually teaching? And if we can understand the text, um, I would say there's nowhere biblically uh, biblical basis for this idea of quote-unquote white supremacy. Now, my last comment before we kind of wrap up is this. Uh, one of the main things you have to realize that a term like white supremacy is no longer about genetics. So for a long time you take like eugenics and you kind of take uh kind of what happened post-Darwin was um th- this concept of, you know, kind of naturally uh white people are gonna be more intelligent. They're um uh, they're going they're just more more naturally, uh much more like biologically fit. Um what, what white supremacy and that sort of stuff is now taking on as much more of an ideological frame. And so about a year ago, I think it was, you had the African-American Museum, Heritage Museum the United States begin to say things, white supremacy is Christmas. White supremacy is the nuclear family. White supremacy is logic. And believe it or not, white supremacy is the scientific method. And so, so when, when you realize that what these people are trying to do is, is deconstruct everything in Western culture and everything that has been Christian. And if you contain it with this idea of white supremacy, then who wants to defend white supremacy? What you need to learn to do, and you have to count the cost. If you're in a workplace, you can't be like, oh yeah, I'll defend white supremacy. When I'm on campus, I'm willing to be like, oh, what's your definition of white supremacy? And then from there, I'm willing to defend it. Because if, if they're going to make it about logic, that's an easy thing in a public form, forum to kind of lean into regarding, yeah, I'm going to be willing to defend logic. If you want to make it about the scientific method, I thought us Christians are anti-scientific. Yes, let's make it about the scientific method. That's white supremacy. So the vaccines, you know, it's science. Uh, is now about white supremacy. And so what you have to realize is is white supremacy is a dumping bucket for anything the left doesn't like. And the left does not like creation because what does creation give you? Gives you male, gives you female. What does science give you? Ah, science no longer tells you what a male and female is. What does is, what is, uh, creation give you? It gives you marriage. It gives you be fruitful and multiply. What does science want to do? Oh yeah, marriage is whatever we want it to be or we'll act like it's scientific. Oh, we get to abort our children. So at the end of the day, I think the issue is this. It's creation versus the satanic lie That you're your own God, there is no creation, and we can destroy creation. I think at bottom, that's really what's going on here. This is a religious debate. It's a religious war, so to speak. And the remedy, kind of going back to the beginning of the show, is the death, the burial, and resurrection of God's son. That God's son has taken on flesh and blood. He became a man, dwelt with us, lived with us, washed our feet crucified at the hands of sinful men, and resurrected on the third day. That's the hope of the world. And anything other than that is not hopeful. So these ideologies that we're up against, we have to realize what they are at the end of the day. They're anti-Christian, they're anti-Bible, um, and they're willing to lie. They're of their father, the lie, of the devil. He's been lying from the beginning. Um, and so that's what these people are willing to do. And that's what even what the quote-unquote scientific American is willing to do, despite even the history of science being a very clear eugenics project and all the, or, or strands of it. I don't want to say science is that, but there have been strands of science that have been that. And secular man can do whatever he wants with science. He can either act like, oh, we're just doing good or because there is no good, it becomes utilitarian. So anyway, that's, uh, that's one of the main things I want to discuss. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, you can reach me, Keith at campuspreacher.com, campus evangel on the Twitter campus preacher on Instagram. Uh, did I say keith at com? Yes, email me there. If you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, and Lord willing, I'll talk to you next week and we'll see you in Nashville.